0: Hello and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have four brand new movies to review for you, as well as one that might be brand new to you, but is not technically new to me. It came out a few weeks ago, but I didn't have the time to review it for you until this past week, but I'm thankful that I'm able to review that for you right now. But first, the first movie that I'm going to be reviewing for you is Thor Love and Thunder. This is the fourth Thor movie starring Chris Hemsworth as the titular Greek god. It is also the direct sequel to Thor Ragnarok and also takes place after the events of the last two Avengers movies. And it is the 29th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is directed by Taika Waititi, who also who not only has won an Academy Award for Jojo Rabbit, but also directed and co-wrote Thor Ragnarok, which I saw back in 2018 and I absolutely loved it. I have to confess though, I have not yet seen the first two Thor movies. I I was introduced cinematically to Thor by way of the first Avengers film and that was good enough for me because it seemed like the first two Thor movies were a bit melodramatic uh, before Taika Waititi joined the Marvel Cinematic Universe, both as a director and writer, and also as the voice of w- one of the comic relief characters known as Gore, uh, Korg, excuse me, who is, I guess, a Greek god that's made out of rocks. Either that, or he's just a colorful sidekick. But in Thor: Love and Thunder, Thor enlists the help of Valkyrie reprised here from Thor Ragnarok by Tessa Thompson, Korg, as I said, voiced by Taika Waititi, and ex-girlfriend Jane Foster, who is played by Natalie Portman, who is not in Thor Ragnarok, but she was in the first two Thor movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And together, they combine their forces to fight Gore the God Butcher, who intends to make the gods extinct. And Gore the God Butcher is played, I think, very well in this film by Christian Bale. And Christian Bale, we know as a hero in in some movies, particularly the Dark Knight trilogy. But as evidence from movies like American Psycho, he also plays a villain really well. And in this movie, he is no exception. He has a very tough act to follow after Thanos from many of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, particularly the last two Avengers films. But here, uh, he still plays creepy and evil (laughs) very well, kind of like he did in American Psycho, although unlike in American Psycho, Christian Bale is very thin, very pale, and also has Literal sharp teeth, as opposed to when he was an American Psycho, he had very figurative sharp teeth. And knowing the method actor that Christian Bale usually is, it's likely that he lost a lot of weight to play Gore. But it is probably well worth it because Christian Bale is an excellent actor and plays evil, not to mention dark heroism, very well. And I liked actually the balance of this film a lot. It is certainly a darker film than Thor Ragnarok. And Thor Ragnarok was a bit more for laughs, but I thought actually the balance between the funny parts in that film as well as the dark parts in that film was was very good. And I'd say the same for Thor, Love and Thunder as well. I mean, Christian Bale definitely gives it his all when playing a very evil character, but I thought that Chris Hemsworth, who does not need to be funny, came off as naturally funny and That's saying a lot for Chris Hemsworth, especially considering that there are other good-looking actors in Hollywood, like Ryan Reynolds is a primary example who tried desperately to be funny, but in my opinion, they fall short. But Chris Hemsworth is not quite as self-conscious in his approach to comedy as Ryan Reynolds is, and I'm very thankful for that, particularly as he's been playing Thor as of late, and Thor 11 Thunder has a lot of interesting surprises. There are some neat cameos in this film, not only by certain other members of the MCU, particularly the Guardians of the Galaxy, who will have another film coming out soon. Their film is actually coming out next year, but in this film, they have a, a very good cameo in the beginning of the film. And also, what I really liked about Thor 11 Thunder over other MCU movies that have come out, particularly Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is there actually is spoken and shown exposition, thanks to the rock character Korg, of what Thor has been up to since we last saw him in Avengers Endgame. And Thor being in Eternal God is still in the game of being a god and a superhero, unlike other people who met their fate or other heroes that met their fate in Avengers Endgame, opening up the fourth chapter of the MCU. But what I liked about it was there was somebody who actually caught us up to what Thor and the Guardians of the Galaxy have been up to since we last saw them, which is something that probably is required for every MCU movie. And it was missing from Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness so much so that I felt lost. I have been watching every MCU movie. I've seen every one except for the first two Thor movies, but then again, I see a lot of other films, so I need to be caught up, and when somebody who goes to the movies as much as I do needs to be caught up, I can only imagine what people who don't go to the movies as much as me need to be caught up as well. So I liked the plot of the movie. I thought Christian Bale made a great villain. I thought Chris Hemsworth made a good villain. Not to mention had some surprising comic relief, and he worked together very well with Natalie Portman, Tessa Thompson, and Taika Ytt as their as his right-handed people. What I did not appreciate about Thor Love and Thunder was how underdeveloped the primary female characters were. For example, first and foremost, there's Natalie Portman as Jane Foster. Natalie Portman, of course, is an amazing actress, but this movie didn't give her very much to work with, which was very surprising. For instance, you're told in this movie that Jane Foster is um, suffering from stage four cancer. Yet Natalie Portman not only has all of her hair; her hair also looks great. In addition to that, she becomes a hero known as the Mighty Thor, which is in juxtaposition to Thor, and is able to get Thor's original hammer, which has been broken into pieces, and she somehow telepathically is able to form, bring that uh, hammer together, and use it as a weapon, which. Previously, only Thor and one other character, whom I won't give away, was able to do. There was no explanation for how Jane Foster was able to do that. There was also no explanation for when she held the hammer, how she was able to instantly overcome cancer. Another thing was Tessa Thompson's character, Valkyrie. And I have been chiefly complaining about Valkyrie's character, not the way Tessa Thompson performs her because Tessa Thompson is an excellent actress and she rarely steers me wrong. But like Natalie Portman, Tessa Thompson is too great an actress to have this film underserve her. And one of the primary problems I had with Valkyrie is that she, she is known as King Valkyrie in this film, King, not Queen. And there's no explanation for that. And if it's one of those sort of gender-swapping things, that would be one thing. If she had a sex change, that would be another. But it's never explained why she prefers to be known as a king rather than a queen or a princess or anything like that. One sentence would explain that, but there's no explanation for that. And I think Tessa Thompson, as an actress and as a member of the MCU deserves a lot better. But Thor Love and Thunder, I didn't think was as good as Thor Ragnarok, but I liked everything about it except for the underrepresentation of the female characters who should have been more developed, especially considering that they hold strong supporting roles in this film, which is why I give Thor Love and Thunder my rating of a high checkout because I do think that it fails to disappoint, unlike some of the other MCU or potential MCU movies that came out earlier this year, especially Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, and probably most especially the uh, the other film with uh, Jared Leto that came out this year, Morbius. <laughs> Temporarily forgot the name there. But Thor Love and Thunder, I think, is still a fun movie. Christian Bale uh, serves as a formidable villain that does have a tough act to follow after Thanos, but still holds his own as well. And I also didn't quite like the way that the story arc of the character gore the god butcher was resolved it felt a little too easy to me as well as had some predictable dialogue at the end but otherwise thor love and thunder is a very smooth ride and unlike other mcu movies that have came that have come out as of late it shows promise for future mcu titles Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Marcel, the Shell with Shoes On. This is a 2021 film based on an original character created by former SNL alum Jenny Slate. And she created this character, which is an anthropomorphic seashell with one eye an animated mouth and shoes where those shoes came from. You don't get the answer from this movie, but that's hardly a complaint that I would give this film. But in August, 2010, after Jenny Slate left SNL, uh, after one inauspicious season, she created this character and created a short that premiered at the Tribeca film festival in 2012. And It also uh, made its debut on YouTube and became a viral sensation. After that, Jenny Slate wrote a Marcel-themed children's book that was released in 2011 that also uh, was a hit in bookstores as well. And this is Marcel's feature film debut. It's not... Technically his first film, but judging from the way this film came together, it's probably not going to be his last. So the tagline of this film tells you that this is a feature adaptation of the animated short film where a, (laughs) an up and coming filmmaker by the name of Dean, who's played by himself, who also directs this film, Dean Fleischer Camp, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Jenny Slate, as well as Nick Paley and Elizabeth Holm. And he is interacting with Marcel as Marcel is living almost alone in an empty but nice house that's used as a stop for Airbnb. And he lives there with his other um, shell, who is his grandmother, whose name is... Connie, who's voiced by Isabella Rossellini. Marcel himself is voiced by Jenny Slate. And this character, Marcel the Shell with Shoes on, was, as I said, created by Jenny Slate, but also co-created by her then-husband, Dean Fleischer-Camp. Sadly, Jenny Slate and Dean Fleischer-Camp have gotten divorced in the time that Marcel was introduced to the world and when this film was created, but they still work together to create this film. And it's actually kind of fascinating how great a film they created. Marcel, the shell with shoes on is very meek, but also very lovable. And this film is at a slower pace, but I think it's one that kids can particularly appreciate. And I think that it's more poignant and it also tells a better story than Minions, the rise of Gru, which was very kinetic and very energetic, but didn't really tell a very good story here. I was just mesmerized by the world in which Marcel, the shell with shoes on lives. And I was fascinated to see the world through Marcel's one eye. And the movie really gets going when you learn that Marcel lives somewhat alone in this big house, but he is also missing his family, who was taken away from him when the family, or rather the couple who first lived in the house, ultimately split up and the man of this or the patriarch of this couple took his things in addition to a lot of Marcel's family. It's not explained particularly clearly if he purposefully took the family away. I don't know what he would do with uh, a shoebox full of mollusks and other creatures who developed shoes as well as distinct personalities, but it's a way to get the story going. And also Marcel develops some interest from the media, particularly from Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes, who plays herself in the film. And I don't quite know what else to say about this film other than the fact that you instantly fall in love with Marcel, even if you hadn't seen the original shorts in which Marcel appears or are familiar with the Marcel the Shell with Shoes on book series. I absolutely love the character. In fact, I love the character so much that I forgot that this film was a a combination of live action and animation, but that's exactly what it is. And I think that speaks to how flawless the live action animation is. It's mesmerizing to see Marcel go about his house, both by foot and also with the assistance of a tennis ball. In addition to some other things like some creative use of honey. I was totally on board with this film. I absolutely loved it. I took my girlfriend to see it as well, and she loved it, and neither of us were especially familiar with the characters. I was a little bit more familiar because I'm a little bit more aware of Jenny Slate's filmography, but Jenny Slate fortunately joins the ranks of former SNL alum who became famous in spite of being on SNL not because of it, which includes some other comic actors like... Gilbert Gottfried, Chris Rock, Sarah Silverman, and the list goes on. I think that I would love to see a sequel to Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. And I should also note in case you didn't know it all already, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On gets my rating of a knockout. It's not only one of the best children's films that i've seen this year it may be the best children's film but it's certainly so far one of my favorite films of the year it's unassuming it's imaginative it does i think take some inspiration from some other animated stop motion characters that have come out before as well as other familiar children's stories over the last couple of decades like the borrowers but i'm comparing this film to favorably to those other films. I think it takes some inspiration from that, but overall is a very original film with a very endearing character. And it also shows that even divorced couples can take something that they've created and make, and still make something poignant and great from it, which I think can also be extrapolated into other life lessons as well. But for the most part, Marcel, Marcel, the cell, the, the, Marcel, the shell with shoes on is not only a tongue twister to say sometimes, but it's also a great effort from director Dean Fleischer-Camp, as well as its original creator and voice talent, Jenny Slate. And not to mention, there is one particularly sad scene in this film. I won't give it away, but see the film for yourself. I think you'll probably fall in love with Marcel the same way I did. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Sea Beast, which has been brought to you by Netflix Animation, which I believe is a relatively new animation company. A lot of times Netflix has put on its platform movies, or rather animated movies from other studios, especially Disney, DreamWorks. Illumination and others, but this is one of the first movies that I know of that was produced in-house at Netflix Animation, and it certainly stands on uh, very well alongside other films from Disney and DreamWorks. Maybe it doesn't reach the level of Disney or Pixar, but it certainly holds its own alongside Illumination, or DreamWorks animated pictures. It is directed by Chris Williams in his feature film um, directorial debut, not just feature film animation directorial debut. And it has an impressive roster of voice talents, including Carl Urban, Jared Harris, and Marion Jean-Baptiste. It is a film that is actually also an original story. This was not based on a book. Chris Williams, the director, wrote the story and screenplay along with Nell Benjamin, and it is about a young girl who stows away on the ship of a legendary sea monster hunter. And when she does, the crew, as well as this young girl, launch an epic journey into uncharted waters and make history to boot. There are some comparisons that you can make between this film, The Sea Beast, and Moby Dick. And yeah, they certainly do have a lot in common, but very much like Marcel the Shell with Shoes on and The Borrowers, I compare the two stories very favorably. And it's a film about adventure and danger as well. And there are some parts of this movie that, even, you know, in spite of it being a film that's probably geared more towards children, there are some very scary moments in this film, including one scene where the captain of this um, ship whose name is captain crow. Who's voiced by Jared Harris kills a sea monster. That's not the graphic part, although that may deter some younger viewers. But when he tries to swim to the surface, there's a scene where you learn that the sea monster is not quite dead and the way he takes out his vengeance on captain crow is quite scary. And it certainly had me scared, especially when I have this almost spontaneous reaction to characters in films that are underwater. When they hold their breath, I hold my breath too. And when this particular part happened, I kind of began to give up hope in retaining my breath as well. But the, the scene does resolve itself, but it's very scary when it actually happens. But the movie does have somewhat of a preachy environmental message at the end, which is spoken by the character Maisie Brumble, who's voiced by uh, Zaris angel Hator. Uh, but overall, I really like the adventure of this film. I loved, absolutely loved the animation of this film. As a matter of fact, in the very beginning, you're shown a sea wreck. And you're also shown some very choppy waters, as well as somebody clinging to part of the wrecked ship for dear life. And as I was watching this scene, I was beginning to think to myself that I was watching real water as opposed to animated water. But sure enough, the water was very well animated. And that's just the. That's that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the excellent animation in this film, which is quite impressive, not only for an animation studio that hasn't quite reached the pinnacle of the other animated studios, especially Disney and DreamWorks, but undoubtedly the animators of this film knew exactly what they were doing. And this is a very impressive directorial debut by Chris Williams as well. Not to mention the fact that it's not easy to create an original story, much less an animated original story, but I was very impressed by The Sea Beast, and because it's on Netflix, I will probably watch it again. It debuted on Netflix on July 8th and was previously released in selected theaters on June 24th before debuting on Netflix. I think this is one of those Netflix films that could be worth seeing on the big screen, but for convenience sake, you can see it on Netflix right now, and it is worth it no matter how big your TV is, which is why I give Sea Beast my rating of a knockout. It has a stellar voice uh, cast in its roster, and the character of Maisie Brumble, who's played by Zaris Angel Hader, is... Certainly an inspiration for girls, not to mention women of color, as much as she is uh, for boys. And also the other stellar voice cast is excellent. Carl Urban, Jared Harris, Marion Jean-Baptiste. You're not really sure whether they are monster hunters or pirates or both, but you're along with them for the ride. And primarily, not only is the story original, but the animation is top-notch. And again, it has a lot to live up to, especially compared to Disney, but it had some of the animators of Moana and Big Hero 6. And it certainly shows in the animation and might actually rival that of Disney. But the fact of the matter is it had a great story, had great characters and great animation. And that's really all you can ask for with an animated film of any kind, let alone one that tells an original story. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a French film called Dangerous Liaisons. And it is not the same movie as the 1988 film starring John Malkovich, Glenn Close, and Michelle Pfeiffer, which was nominated for several Oscars and won three. Among them was... Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and Best Costume Design. It was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Actress in a Leading Role, Glenn Close, Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Best Music by, uh, that is, Original Score by George Fenton. This Dangerous Liaisons has a lot to live up to, but very much like the 1988 film of the same name, it is also based on the 1985 play written by Christopher Hampton, which in and of itself was adopted from the 1782 novel of the same name by Pierre Chauderlot de Laclos, But Dangerous Liaisons, this movie, very much like Cruel Intentions, the 1999 film starring Sarah Michelle Gellar, Ryan Phillippe, and Reese Witherspoon, it is based on the Dangerous Liaisons play and the novel upon which the play was based. However, like Cruel Intentions, this Dangerous Liaisons, which has a French name, which I will not say because I didn't take any French and would probably make a fool out of myself saying it, uh, takes place present day. And it takes place actually in France, uh, in some coastal town. And you are introduced to Booksmart Céline, who falls for bad boy Tristan at his new Biarritz High School, which is called uh, uh, Victor Hugo High School, but it was not Victor Hugo who wrote Dangerous Liaisons. It would have been probably nicer to have had the high school be named after Pierre Chaudelot de uh, Laclos, but I guess you're not asking too much here. That's not the problem I have with this movie. But she is unaware that she's part of a cruel bet that Kristen has made with social media queen and child star Vanessa. So, very much like the Dangerous Liaisons story, there is a cruel and mean-spirited woman who has a relationship <laughs> albeit it's a very toxic relationship with this popular guy who could get any woman he wants. The only problem is Celine, despite being 17, is actually engaged, not just dating another guy. She is engaged, even though she is in high school and she believes in true love, which makes me kind of roll my eyes a little bit, because I think in this day and age, especially in developed countries like France and especially in America, there aren't a lot of Girls or women who want to get married at the age of 17 or 18. And even if they did, their parents would probably tell them this is a really bad idea because your late teens and your early 20s should be the most selfish period of your life. And I have a very hard time getting into movies about wealthy kids in high school, mainly because. It's not like the school to which I attended and I wasn't a wealthy student, not to mention someone who has, who plays games with other less than wealthy students and makes bets with other kids with cruel intentions. So I had to kind of take a deep breath and sort of, um, take this movie for what it was. I did appreciate the performance of the actress who plays Celine, who's who's played by Paola Locatelli, whose nationality I don't exactly know, but she is a mixed-race actress who is jaw-droppingly beautiful, and she's one of those actresses who I cannot imagine that there's only one person in the school who would fall in love with her upon looking at her. She's one of those actresses you instantly want to cuddle, and I would if... I didn't have a girlfriend already. And, but I, because of the fact that she is such a likable character, I immediately hated the character of Tristan, who's played by Simone Rirole, for even going into this bet and messing with Celine the way she does. And I guess that's kind of the point of the character, but I don't think that the actor who played Tristan, uh, whose name again is. Uh, Simon Rirole, really played his role as evenly as he did. Of course, you don't like the fact that he's in this bet, and the actress who plays Vanessa, Ella Pellegrini, is very good at being duplicitous. But I don't think that Tristan really makes the argument for being someone you're rooting for in addition to someone who you're supposed to dislike. And I think that John Malkovich played that role surprisingly well in the original Dangerous Liaisons. I don't think that Ryan Philippi played the same kind of role as well because I really didn't like Ryan Philippi in Cruel Intentions. I just basically hated him more than I hated Sarah Michelle Geller's character. And that is saying a lot because I was supposed to hate Sarah Michelle Geller's character. But I didn't also like the fact that this movie was trying way, way, way too hard to make you believe that these were high school characters in present day. And largely because I think Instagram was mentioned every three seconds or so, and the high schoolers popularity was based on the number of followers they had, which if they, if they were in the hundreds of thousands, it wasn't good enough, but if they were in the millions, they were instantly popular. And I'm not saying that that's not based on real life, but what I didn't like was the moral of the story seemed to hinge on how many followers you had. And it seemed like the people who met their punishment received fewer followers, whereas the people who won in the end received more followers. And I began to think, is that really the lesson of this movie? That the 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 better you are, the, the more followers that you have, and ergo, vicariously, the happier you are? I really don't like that. In addition to the fact that the movie seemed to kind of pull punches as to whether or not it wanted to be a musical or not. I did actually like the the subset of the play they were putting on, which was going to be a musical, but they also anticipated this being a hip hop musical like Hamilton, for example. And every time the the people who, who performed hip hop in this film, all of whom were white, by the way, did their sort of um, m- musical hip hop numbers. I began to roll my eyes because I began to think this is very much like the monotonous hip hop that I hear, you know, on, on YouTube and the the stuff that Gen Z is listening to, which is not really good hip hop. In addition to the fact that they don't really say anything particularly original, either in English or in French, they all talk about haters. They all talk about being rich and that's really not inspirational or rather inspired Uh, um, lyrics. And I would have thought better for a a movie that takes place on the coast of France. And there are films that make interesting characters out of rich kids. There are movies and not to mention novels that make great characters out of deplorable uh, characters. But this movie is just not one of them. Which is really a shame because I think that the actress, uh, Paola Locatelli, is very talented and she was lovely in this film, but I didn't really buy anybody else and I also didn't really, I wasn't convinced that this movie was an accurate or a valid portrayal of high school, let alone in a wealthy neighborhood. In addition to the fact that, unlike the original Dangerous Liaisons, without giving too much away... This movie actually has a happy ending, which I really didn't buy. So this version of Dangerous Liaisons, unlike the 1988 film, which is based on a French novel and play, but was spoken mainly in English with English and American actors, this Dangerous Liaisons just sucks and actually Cruel Intentions, the 1999 film, which which has Dangerous Liaisons as as its basis, was truer to the original Dangerous Liaisons play than this movie was, which is why this Dangerous Liaisons gets my rating of a low strikeout. It's not a flunk out, mainly because I was very impressed by uh, Paolo Locatelli, and I would love to see her in more films later. I think she grounded the film very well. What I didn't like was just about Every other actor in this movie, they tried too hard. In addition to the fact that the movie pulled punches and could have made this a tragedy, which it deserved to have, especially since it takes the name of its literary basis. But Dangerous Liaisons, this version from 2022 fell short for me. And I think it's going to fall short for you too. Even if you elect to have this film in its original French with English subtitles, it's just... It didn't do it for me. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Man from Toronto, which is a Netflix original which debuted on the platform on June 24th, 2022. I'm reviewing it now because it's one of those films that I had on my list but I didn't get to review it for you until now. And this is a movie that is directed by Patrick Hughes, who also brought us The Hitman's Bodyguard, which was a largely forgettable film that came out in 2017. And even though it had uh, Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson in it, it was a largely forgettable film. And the director, Patrick Hughes, also directed the sequel. Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, which I thought was even worse than the original Hitman's Bodyguard film. I just thought it was not just forgettable, it was bad. And even great actors like Salma Hayek, Antonio Banderas, and Morgan Freeman couldn't save it. And unfortunately, Patrick Hughes is thinking of making Um, The Man from Toronto, not only a sequel, but also tying it in with the Hitman's Bodyguards cinematic universe, to which I say, oh, please stop. (laughs) If the Hitman's Bodyguard itself was any good or any worth writing about, I would be all for this. But The Man from Toronto also falls very short, even though it has an asset in the fact that It does not have Ryan Reynolds in it. Instead, it has Kevin Hart playing an ambitious fitness guru or wannabe fitness guru named Teddy, who develops a kind of boxing where you don't hit your opponents, which has kind of already been developed in Ty Bo and Les Mills Body Combat, but I guess in this cinematic universe... This uh, non-combat boxing where you throw punches, but you don't hit anyone has not been invented yet, but Kevin Hart's character, Teddy, is an ambitious um, potential fitness guru who wants to get this off the ground, and he's dating a paralegal named Lori, who's played by Jasmine Matthews, and they're doing pretty well together, even though they're scraping by, but Teddy gets a vacation home for the two of them on a romantic weekend, and he finds out that he ends up not only at the wrong place, but he's also mistaken for an assassin by the name of the man from Toronto, who is played in this film by Woody Harrelson. And Woody Harrelson is not a native Canadian. I'm not sure if that's the joke of the film at all. He is a native Texan but he's known as the man from Toronto in this film because he lives in Toronto, but living in a city, speaking as a guy who lives in Kansas, uh, lives in Kansas, lives in Nashville now, but is originally from New England. And you could tell from my speaking voice, I live in Nashville, but I'm not from Nashville. Same with Woody Harrelson, who still has his signature Southern accent. So I didn't quite get that, but apparently there, there are code names for assassins based on cities. There's a man from Tokyo. There are men from Topeka to whom you are introduced later on in the film. So this mistaken identity is one that I feel like Kevin Hart, in particular has been in before. And I like Kevin Hart. Unlike Ryan Reynolds, Kevin Hart is at either naturally funny or he works hard at seeming effortless, but I do like Kevin Hart, but nothing in this film was really getting to me or really made me laugh. There were a couple of times where I chuckled, but overall, this was Kevin Hart, again, being unassuming when he should have been at least a little bit smarter or at least his, there's something very obvious going on and he just doesn't get it until it's way, way, way too late And he's also teaming up with Woody Harrelson, who is not supposed to be funny in this film. But I've seen other films where Woody Harrelson is funny. I've seen TV shows like Cheers, where Woody Harrelson is very funny. So Woody Harrelson, I think, plays it a little too straight. Kevin Hart plays it a little too funny without having anything really funny to say. And I feel like The Man from Toronto is less like... The Hitman's Bodyguard, and more like Central Intelligence, in which Kevin Hart co-starred with Dwayne Johnson, and the two of them worked very well together, and I felt like the chemistry between Kevin Hart and Woody Harrelson, unlike the chemistry between Kevin Hart and Dwayne Johnson in Central Intelligence, but also in the two Jumanji sequels, just wasn't there. And I felt like the interactions between Kevin Hart trying to be funny and Woody Harrelson trying to play completely straight just didn't really work. The humor was very predictable and also the action wasn't uh, particularly uh, good either. I thought that was predictable as well. Plus, you have Kaylee Cuoco in this film in a very small role, even though she gets fourth billing as... Kevin Hart's character's um, girlfriend's best friend, Anne. And I'm very surprised that an actress with the comedic caliber of Kaylee Cuoco, especially given her performance alone in the Big Bang Theory, was just so under rug swept. And I just felt like Kaylee Cuoco's character was so uninspired and also underdeveloped that it could have been played by just about anyone. I did think that Ellen Barkin had a good role in this film as the handler, who might be uh, an ally or an adversary, you never really quite know, but overall, The Man from Toronto didn't really do it for me, It's is why The Man from Toronto gets my rating of a flunk out. It's not necessarily a terrible film, but I thought it was uninspired, and like other films that I had seen before. I suppose it's a little bit better than The Hitman's Bodyguard, but that's not really saying very much. And if Patrick Hughes does combine The Man from Toronto with the characters from The Hitman's Bodyguard, I anticipate based on The Hitman's Bodyguard's films that have come out so far, in addition to this movie, The Man from Toronto, it's not going to be a very good film. It's going to be kind of retread. I mean, after all, it could be the fourth or fifth film, but based on the three films that we've seen from Patrick Hughes in this proposed cinematic universe, it's not going to be very good. And who could blame me based on those other films that I've seen? Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of July 11th through July 15th, 2022. And there are four films that are being released in theaters. The first one is an anime that is known as The Deer King, which is coming in theaters or is subject to being released in theaters on July 13th, Wednesday, 2022. It is a movie about the last survivor of a band of warriors who is enslaved in a salt mine. That is uh, quite a curse there. But one night, savage dogs attack and a mysterious disease wipes out everyone at the mine the warrior escapes with a little girl while a gifted physician looks for a cure. It sounds like a very intriguing story and it is coming or subject to being released in American theaters on July 13th. I could go one way or the other with anime films based on who's directing it, but I would be willing to see this movie and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. But on July 15th, Friday, 2022, there are three movies that are going to be released in theaters. One of them is Where the Crawdads Sing, and this is a movie that is based on a novel written by Delia Owens, which came out a few years ago, and it is about a woman who raised herself in the marshes of the Deep South, presumably Louisiana, become, who becomes a suspect in the murder of a man with whom she was once involved. I presume uh, in a sexual nature, but the movie stars Daisy Edgar Jones as Kaya Clark, who is the main woman in this film. It also co-stars Taylor John Smith, Harris Dickinson, and David Straithairn, in addition to some other actors. So there are some actors that I know here. I don't, I'm not too familiar with Daisy Edgar Jones, although she is a bit of a doppelganger to Dakota Johnson, but I will see this movie and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on July 15th, 2022 is a movie that's called Paws of Fur- pause of Fury. I almost said Paws of Furry, but you I don't think you could really blame me there. It's Paws of Fury, The Legend of Hank. And this movie looks like a knockoff of Kung Fu Panda, but it does actually have a very impressive roster of voice acting talent and it is brought to you by, or it's, it's brought to you in theaters by Paramount and Nickelodeon films. So it's a movie about Hank, who is a lovable dog with a head full of dreams about becoming a samurai who sets off in search of his destiny. This, to me, sounds like Kung Fu Panda, except the panda is a dog. But interestingly enough, there is some impressive voice talent behind this movie. There is Michael Cera, who we haven't seen for a while, Ricky Gervais, George Taikey, Gabrielle Iglesias, Mel Brooks, Jaiman Hunso, Michelle Yeoh, and Samuel L. Jackson. So this this is no chump cast, but it does look like one of those films that you would see on this ripoff or knockoff DVD, you know, kind of like when Kung Fu Panda came out, there was another one that was called Ninja Panda, for example, but it does come from Paramount and Nickelodeon. So it might be better. It might be better than Kung Fu Panda, which by the way, is debuting as a series, not, not, not another movie, but a series on Netflix from DreamWorks Animation but I'll give Pause of Fury a chance, even though I'm going to mistakenly call it Pause of Furry, but I'll give it a chance and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. The last film that is subject to being released in theaters on July 15th is a movie that's called Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. And this is also based on a novel that was written years ago, decades ago, by Paul Gallico and was actually also made into a TV movie in the early 90s starring Angela Lansbury and Omar Sharif. But Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, the 2022 film, is another feel-good comedy about a widowed cleaning lady in 1950s London who falls madly in love with a contour Dior dress and decides that she must have one of her own. So, as you might expect from the title of this movie, she goes to Paris to obtain one. And Mrs. Harris in this movie is played by Leslie Fanville. Uh, Excuse me, Leslie Manville. I I got the names uh, mixed up because I was looking at the director. The director of this movie is Anthony Fabian, who has previously directed some other... Feature length film. He's directed many other shorts and documentaries, but he's directed the movie Skin from 2008, Louder Than Words from 2013, which is a movie that starred David Duchovny, Hope Davis, and Timothy Hutton. Very good cast there. But this is the first feature film, i.e., a fiction film that he's directed since Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. And I haven't seen or even heard of Skin. But I would be very interested in seeing this film, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, and I probably will. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.